Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books Network and Caribbean Studies, a podcast channel with New Books Network. I'm Sharika Crawford, your host. Today I'm here with Dr. Luis Perez, Jr. He is the J. Carlisle Citizen Professor of History, as well as the Director of the Institute for the Study of the Americas at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Perez is also a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, as well as the Academia de la Historia de Cuba. His work has centered on 19th and 20th century Spanish-speaking Caribbean with an emphasis on Cuba, and he is a prolific writer and has penned over 10 books. Today, we're here to discuss his latest work, Rice in the Time of Sugar, The Political Economy of Food in Cuba, which was published by the University of North Carolina Press. Welcome to New Books Network and Caribbean Studies, Lou. Thank you. It is a great honor to have you on our channel Many, but not all of our listeners know of your stellar scholarship on Cuban history. And so I'm in particular excited to talk a little bit with you about your career as a Cuban historian in the U.S. and, of course, about your latest work. Would you mind um, starting our interview by discussing a bit about how you became interested in Cuban history? Cuban history begins as an adolescent um, in New York, New York City, Um, with the triumph of the Cuban Revolution in 1959, um, a neighborhood, a working class neighborhood on the Upper West Side, in which the Caribbean was very well represented, the Spanish speaking Caribbean was very well represented, uh, principally Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, and Cubans. And the uh, triumph of the Cuban Revolution. Um, in my neighborhood, principally among the Cubans, and many of whom were Cubans who had left the island in the, the uh, last two years of the Batista regime. So there was a personal connection with friends, um, the family of friends, uh, who followed the course of the armed struggle against the Batista government uh, carefully. And when the with the triumph of the revolution, the... Um, the, the news of Batista's flight rippled across the neighborhood. And then, of course, in the next 18 months, the next two years, with uh, the increasing and deepening tensions between Cuba and the United States, uh, Cuba was front and center of much of the public life in this country and something of, of continuing interest um, in school, um, and was quite a drama, of course, peaking with the missile crisis of October. And so Cuba becomes a presence in the lives, both in the neighborhood, among friends, with family members. Uh, and it starts off as something that was um, part of daily life. Your history or your personal history um, intersects kind of at a critical moment. Um, in American history, um, Cuba 
being increasingly um, entangled with um, global politics of the the 1960s and 70s. And I've been very struck and impressed by your ability to take what I call a holistic approach to the study of Cuba's history. It's both, you know, political, but sometimes it's cultural, economic um, focus as well. What drew you to having such a kind of scalpel approach um, to the study of that island's past? I would love to be able to tell you that this was part of a a grand plan, a great design, Um, but it isn't. It was things that called my attention in the course of researching one project. One comes across insights and information one deeps digger into the existing scholarship and literature, one becomes more familiar with the, the publications, um, both in Cuba and the United States, newspapers and magazines and historical accounts. And, and as, one, as one gets a deeper appreciation and a fuller understanding of the scope of human history, or for that matter, the history of any people, um, one begins to understand um, questions, issues, matters that pique, you know, that certainly pique my curiosity. Um, and the best example I could give you is in the course of doing research for my book, Unbecoming Cuban, I spent quite a bit of time, uh, several years, reading the daily press um, in Cuba, mostly Havana Press, but provincial press. And in the course, and this is old-fashioned, reading newspapers, Cuban newspapers on microfilm. And part of my uh, research regimen was to put a roll of microfilm in El Mundo, for example, which is Havana Daily, and just scroll the microfilm across the screen and to see what I would see, to read what I would read, and to look at news stories and look at advertisements and look at photographs and just to immerse oneself into into an environment where you are seeing how people lived day to day. And in the course of that research, um, I became to notice here and there, but with increasing frequency, articles, small articles, uh, articles that were the length of which were often related to the social standing and the race and the political prominence of the person, of a person who had committed suicide. So if it's a prominent politician who commits suicide, then it's quite extensive coverage. And if it's an unemployed uh, sugarcane worker, less so. But what became apparent is that the realization of the frequency of articles on suicide, day in day, day after day, day after day, all of a sudden, one becomes aware that there's something going on. It, it's, it's, you don't read stories of suicide in American newspapers the way one reads stories, new stories of suicide in Cuba in the 20th century, from the turn of the century. Not that suicides don't happen in this country, because they do, but rather they are not covered. They're certainly not covered as part of the daily press of ordinary men and women. So the fact that suicides were occurring in Cuba and that they were being covered suggests that there was a deeper phenomenon here. 
And sure enough, what, what I started doing then was to keep notes uh, about suicide, the ways of suicide. Suicides among men, suicides among women, suicides about children, the aging, on and on and on. In other words, this is a project that I backed into as a result of something else I was doing. And in the end, suicide is indeed a phenomenon that is peculiarly unique to Cuban culture and Cuban society that becomes apparent only when one immerses oneself into into the kind of experience of daily life. Hmm. You've mentioned newspapers as being central to that particular book project, but it's clearly it's been um, a source of tremendous um, information and insight for your other works, including Rice in the Time of Sugar. Are there particular collections or specific archives that have um, consistently been a part of your kind of, um, you know, archival or, you know, knowledge that you return to in order to engage and, and seek out a deeper insight as to what was happening in Cuba's past? That's an interesting question because I think historians, we are trained in almost we are we require in the process of our training a kind of uh, involuntary reflex to rush to the archives uh, to look at those manuscripts, those unpublished manuscripts, to those newly declassified government records, to um, to get into those personal papers, the correspondence, the letters, the diaries, the journals, and all of which is important and vital. But often that uh, overlooks what what people are reading day to day. In other words, one one looks at newspapers, um, and and Cuba was was fortunate to have a, a considerable number of newspapers as well as. As periodicals, magazines, they were weekly, they were monthly. Uh, Cuba has a very rich uh, written and literary tradition. And so you, one, looks at, look, one looks at newspapers not only to gather and accumulate information, but try to get an understanding of, of what people are reading and how the culture represents itself to the reading public. Clearly, we're looking at a great gap here because the reading public, the people who have no reading skills, who have no who lack literacy, are not reading, uh, and one bears that in mind. But there is, but there's something, there is some something deeply um, insightful about reading the newspapers and the magazines, uh, particularly when you are reading uh, uh, newspapers and magazines. And, uh, that you have a sense of um, an impending doom. You almost you, you are looking at newspapers and, and and what people are reading at a time when you know that if you're reading something in let's say in 1895, that if you're reading something in uh, in <laughs> in January 1895, you are looking at um, uh, stories in which you know that in a month. And in the coming months, um, this society is going to be plunged 
into a, a catastrophic civil war. And there's something eerie about that. It's almost as you are reading this with the gift of prophecy. You know, you know what's coming, and you are looking at a society that is about to enter into a, a, a moment of transition. And on the other hand, to take a look at those years of transition, wars and revolution, and sometimes you realize that uh, even under the most difficult circumstances, daily life continues uninterrupted and and people continue to live their lives as if uh, on dual tracks. Yes, there's a war going on. Yes, there's a revolution going on. But people still get married. People still have babies. Um, people still celebrate birthdays. Um, so there's this, this odd appreciation of, of these, these parallel lives um, that newspapers and the daily press gives you. Uh, that we we are we we the historians may think that these are cataclysmic events and they may very well be from the historian's point of view, but people who are living this you know continue to create a life that that continues to enable them to experience uh, normal life. Is this deep engagement with the? kind of daily, weekly, and monthly activities of the Cuban um, population, the way in which you came across this new topic on rice consumption and rice production in Cuba in the late 19th and 20th centuries? Um, a little bit, a little bit. Um, what, what kind of drove me to rice was the recognition that we, the historians who, and the historians who work on Cuba, have been consumed with um, with sugar and tobacco. And by no means would I minimize the importance of tobacco and especially of sugar. Um, we, as historians, have been preoccupied with the export economy, export agriculture. Um, we, the historians, have been um, preoccupied with the way that sugar and tobacco uh, just kind of reverberates across Cuban society, the Cuban economy, Cuban race relations, Cuban politics, Cuban foreign policy, Cuban relations with the U.S. In other words, from these two issues, especially from these two themes, uh, and especially sugar, we have created a universe of understanding of the character of Cuban society. And I don't mean to suggest that this is incorrect or unfounded, but we are, our knowledge of the Cuban economy is almost entirely based on these two export products. Um, and in the course of thinking about the Cuban economy, um, at some point years ago, um, I became aware of that we do not study Cuban agriculture. There was our knowledge of Cuban agriculture is almost entirely confined to sugar and um, sugar and coffee and tobacco. I should include the three of them. Um, and we do not know much, did not know much about the agriculture that feeds the Cuban people. We do not know, have not known, have not occupied ourselves with the diet of the Cuban people. In other words, we are looking at we look we look at Cuban agriculture principally through the eyes 
of, um, of export. That is sugar, uh, tobacco, and to a lesser extent, coffee. Um, and so there's a kind of what? I'm thinking this is for the first time, a kind of um, an outside gaze to, the, to Cuban agriculture, the Cuban economy, um, the gaze from the receiving, the receiving countries of Cuban exports and have not really given thought to um, how does this economy, how does this agriculture serve or not uh, the interests of the Cuban people? One of the things that I thought was tremendously um, effective um, when you know when you begin your work, this this new project, you know, reading your opening um, introduction, is how you know, of course, rice is a, a staple of Cuban diet. Um, you you spend some time talking about um, Cuban dishes like ajiaco. I thought immediately of um, moros y cristianos, um, and I just you know I never once thought about well, where is this rice coming from? Is it produced locally? Is it you know um, imported? And I think that you you know this kind of tremendous sort of cultural historical interrogation of this it's this it was very very effective and I wanted um, you to perhaps expand on how rice is such a staple of the Cuban cuisine and yet at the same time you make this argument in your book that it is still linked to the sugar industry that continued to dominate the island um, over the time period of your of your work um, it is it is phenomenal to think that um, a staple rice, which is so central to the Cuban the Cuban diet to Cuban cuisine, um, has n- that Cuba has never been self sufficient. When I say never, not in the nineteenth century, not in the twentieth century, and not today. Um, that Cuba has never been self-sufficient in a product that is so central to its diet, um, that is so utterly counterintuitive, uh, that is so utterly incomprehensible in, in, in one sense, um, that, that uh, a staple uh, that Cubans celebrate, that Cubans uh, ex- exult in, uh, is a product that Cuba has depended as in the form of an import. Um, I mean, there's nothing nothing mysterious as to why. I mean, it really is a very easy cost-benefit analysis. In the 19th century, as sugar was expanding, um, you can make so much money by growing sugar, and you can make so much money by growing rice, and almost without fail, you make more money growing sugar than you do producing rice. Uh, that's nothing complicated about that. And in, 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 the, in the trade patterns that developed in the 19th century, um, it was cost-effective to grow sugar, generate foreign exchange, and import rice. Uh, rice becomes a staple of 
the Cuban diet. It is a staple of the slave diet. It is a staple of the well-to-do. It is a staple of the of the working classes. Um, and so there is this curious but compelling logic that um, sugar will underwrite the cost of rice imports. And let me add that it's not only rice. It's probably every single important staple of the Cuban diet uh, to a lesser or greater extent at one time or another, and certainly today, uh, uh, reaches Cuban uh, kitchens, principally in the form of foreign imports. Where where are they importing this rice from primarily um, over the course of the late 19th into the 20th century? And how does that impact um, Cuban, you know, you know, entrepreneurs or landowners who might consider, you know, filling the gap in the fact that, you know, it's a staple and there's not really a viable um, Cuban market in terms of Cuban producers of rice for the market? Well, a couple of issues involved. Most of Cuban rice in the 19th century, um, some of it comes from Spain, Valencia, um, and most of it comes in the middle decades of the 19th century, comes from South Carolina. Um, and um, in, as we move into the early decades of the 20th century, Cuban, the rice consumed in Cuba comes from Asia by way of uh, the, mostly by Germany and, and uh, the UK. And they're coming from uh, China. Um, so if you can imagine that rice produced in Asia can travel halfway across the world um, and reach Cuba, and it is cheaper to buy rice produced in Asia than it is to buy uh, rice produced in Cuba. Um, and then by the 1930s and 40s, right up through the triumph of the revolution, uh, Cuban rice is originates from Louisiana, and Cuba becomes. We can talk about this later. Cuba becomes uh, Louisiana rice growers' principal overseas market. So, so you have you have this environment. You have this kind of uh, global trade networks and supply chains operating, uh, where rice can be produced uh, abroad cheaper than it can be produced in Cuba. Uh, in part because the the colonial the colonial uh, regime did not invest in rice, and when I say invest in rice, I mean in the technology of rice production. So there is a technology of rice production that the that the Spanish colonial administration did not support, um, and so the capacity to produce vast quantities of rice. Um, really was a, the hallmark feature of production of rice in, in South Carolina and later in Louisiana and, of course, Asia. Um, there were very, very poor road networks in Cuba. So a rice grower in, in, in the interior would have difficulty getting rice to local markets. Um, it was often cheaper because of the expanded railway system in Cuba, the railroads. Uh, that rice 
from, let's say, reaching, produced from South Carolina, maybe shipped out of uh, um, the, the south coast of the United States, eventually, you know, Savannah, New Orleans can reach, let's say, the city of Cardenas on the north coast, and then through a rail system, get that rice distributed into the interior and sell that rice cheaper than it would cost a local rice grower in Cuba to produce. So the combination of technology, steam travel, uh, transportation systems, uh, all work in some synchronized fashion to conspire against the expansion of, of giving the Cuban rice grower access to, giving Cuban rice growers access to their own market. And yet you point out in the in your book that there are two moments. There are two moments where essentially there are opportunities for Cuban producers of rice to kind of rise to the occasion. You you look at um, clearly the Civil War, um, War of 1895, going into the Spanish-American War, and then also um, after the First World War and kind of the interwar years. And I was thinking that it might be interesting for you to perhaps um, talk about those two pivotal moments, one maybe less effective than the second um, interaction of Cuban producers attempting to um, really make a go out of it um, in terms of local domestic production of rice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, one of, one of the things I discovered, which was um, – uh, if I hadn't already committed to other uh, projects, really f- drew my attention was, you know, we, we talk often about the embargo in, in Cuba today and what the Cubans call a bloqueo, the blockade. Um, well, it turns out that Cuba experienced another blockade, uh, one in between 1861 and 1865, um, in which in which the Union Navy blockaded um, the principal southern um, seacoast cities and caused a major crisis in Cuban food supply because so much of it was coming from the south, including and principally rice. And if anybody's listening to this, uh, there's a wonderful book waiting to be written um, about studying the impact of the Union naval blockade on the south um, the consequences of that in Cuba for those years, because we know almost n- next to nothing about how Cuban society adjusted and what were the consequences of that blockade. On the other, on the other events, we have we have two anomalies. We have two anomalies in the 20th century. Um, we have two governments that made an effort to um, diversify. Now, the theme of diversification in Cuba is as old as the Cuban economy. Everyone knows, everyone understood, uh, economists, policymakers, politicians understood from the early decades of the 19th century through the 21st century um, that it was of the utmost necessity that Cuba diversify its economy. It was a matter of conventional wisdom and received knowledge that Cuba could not depend on sugar alone. And indeed, by the 1930s, 40s, and certainly by the 1950s, the capacity of Cuban sugar to sustain economic growth in Cuba was 
was really the diminishing and Cuba was approaching independently of the political crisis, Cuba was moving toward a serious economic crisis because of, of the failure of sugar to sustain economic growth. So the two anomalies we have, it turns out, uh, are two governments that are um, um, <laughs> universally uh, denounced and and who are, um, no one has a kind word to say about either of these two governments except for one little detail. And that's the government of Gerardo Machado, who takes over in 1925 and is thrown out of office in 1933, and Fulgencio Batista, uh, both of whom uh, followed, um, dare I say, enlightened economic policies vis-a-vis rice, vis-a-vis diversification. Um, And when these policies were enacted in Cuba in the late 1920s and the early 1930s, Cuba had already begun to produce increasing supplies of agricultural products for the domestic market, um, including and especially rice. And the same with Batista. In the the 1950s, Batista uh, committed his government to the expansion of Cuban rice production as a as an important source of, as an important strategy of import substitution. Why would Cuba spend hard-earned, hard currency to buy rice that Batista felt, and, and, and Batista, among many others, believed um, Cubans could produce? In other words, it was, it was a win-win. You create economic independence by expanding rice production. Um, You meet the domestic market and you save foreign exchange. Uh, For the Cubans, it was was an absolute no-brainer. So we have this anomaly. We have two governments that are are dictatorships who, who are known for repression and torture in violation of civil liberties, um, and who in this one little area of economic policies embarked on um, a program that would um, would have had far-reaching consequences. The government of Fidel Castro began with this in mind, and then by the 1960s switched back to the old model that Cuba could specialize and uh, generate far more um, foreign exchange by concentrating on sugar uh, and importing rice. And that was the exact same policy that the colonial regime in the 19th century followed. Specialize in sugar, generate foreign exchange, and buy the rice with that with that foreign exchange. So what happens so what happens to the US um, you know producers of rice who are you know, increasingly, you know, growing their market share. I mean, they're competing with um, Europeans who are bringing in Asian um, made rice. I mean, what happens in the governments under Machado and and Batista in particular um, that either affects their ability to kind of keep Cuba as a a primary market for their rice? 
Well, that's the other story. <laughs> uh, that's a story of, um, you know, we would look at this and, and understand that this is um, uh, a remarkable story of power, of American hegemony, uh, the price that Cuba paid for, um, for dependency on sugar. Um, so in the, 19, late, in the late 1930s, early 1940s, the U.S. rice producers, through a series of complicated maneuvers and complicated policy changes and complicated agreements and arrangements, finally got a toehold in the Cuban market. Um, and these are the Louisiana rice growers, principally Louisiana, not entirely, some in East Texas, some in Arkansas, some in South Carolina. But this is really driven by, by, um, by Louisiana growers. Um, and by the late 1940s, early 1950s, Cuba emerges as a principal export market for U.S. rice producers. Um, and as the Batista government begins to promote diversification, as the Batista government begins to commit itself to uh, import substitution with a focus on rice, um, they begin to succeed. And I, I forgot the, the, the actual, the, the, the actual uh, the statistics, but all through the 1950s, 52, 53, 54, 55, the Cuban share of its market for domestic rice production began to increase. And it may have been, and again, I'm not, I'm not certain of these numbers, may have been gone from 20 to 30 to 40 or 50 percent, the Cuban share of, um, of the domestic market uh, for domestically produced rice. This is facilitated by the Cuban Bank of Development, which begins to make, uh, uh, makes, makes available loans, um, favorable loans to farmers who are prepared to expand the production of rice. The Cuban government invests a great deal of, of funds and resources in the acquisition of machinery and fertilizers. Um, it begins to develop the means of irrigation. In other words, the state, the, the Cuban state, committed itself um, in, in, in important ways for the first time um, to diversify the Cuban economy, to compete with foreign rice for share of the Cuban market, uh, to develop self-sufficiency in rice, uh, to save foreign exchange. Um, and it was succeeding. It was through 55, 56, it was, it was succeeding. That's the good news, but that's the bad news. Because um, as the share of the, the domestic market increasingly passes over to Cuban producers, you understand what that implies. That means that the share of the Cuban market to foreign rice growers is reduced commensurately. And the Americans begin to lose, uh, little by little, year after year, increasing share of the Cuban market. And they are not happy with the development. Um, so this is, 
And this is a microcosm of, of relations, trade relations, that, that one has to drill real deep um, into, into commodities, into trade relations, into trade agreements, into international commerce, um, to, to develop an appreciation. Uh, I would confess that the course of my research for this book, there were moments that this is just totally dreary, dreary research. It is, it's about customs duties and tariffs and all the stuff that just is nothing exciting about this. Um, <laughs> um, but it's like getting into the weeds, getting into the muck, getting into the, into the nitty-gritty of, of trade relations and the power politics in, 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 in the United, both in, in Havana and in Washington, to see how these things play out, how they work, how they work through uh, interest groups, lobbyists, influence peddlers. Um, the rice growers in the United States had a powerful ally in Senator Ellender from Louisiana, who was a chair of the Senate Agricultural Committee um, that had considerable authority over the determination of the, of the sugar quota for Cuba. It happens, too, of course, that, um, that Louisiana not only an important was not only an important rice producing state, but it was also an important sugarcane producing state. Um, and the rice growers, the rice growers, uh, through their lobbyists, through a network of personal friendships and professional associations and political allies, this is a time when the Democrats, you know, the Dixiecrats of the South, controlled most of the important committees in the Senate, and Ellen, there was certainly among that, that group. Um, and Allender, uh, Allender made it very clear in, to the Cubans that if the Batista government insisted on diversifying its economy, to which everyone agreed it had to, had to do, and if the Batista government insisted on expanding Cuban rice production, and if the Batista government continued to provide uh, state support in both finances and technology, um, and if the Batista government continued to promote policies that led to a, a the diminishing of the U.S. share of the market, then Ellender uh, and the Senate Agricultural Committee, uh, and presumably with the collaboration and cooperation of the of the Eisenhower administration, uh, Ellender made it very clear that he would seek to cut the Cuban sugar quota. Now, the Cuban market is Cuba's principal destination, is, is the principal destination for Cuban sugar. Cuban sugar by the 1950 lives off and lives on the American sugar quota. And when, when, when Ellender uh, uh, threatens to cut the Cuban sugar quota, um, the sugar interests in Cuba, many of whom are American-owned, uh, plunge into panic. 
because this is the principal market for their product. And so what happened is that the Cuban sugar interests go to war against the Cuban rice interests um, and apply enormous amount of political pressure on the Batista government to stop this nonsense about import substitution, about diversification, that if indeed, if indeed this was going to be an issue between the survival of sugar or the survival of rice, okay, there was no doubt as to who was going to survive. And so by the 1957, certainly, Batista um, Batista began to withdraw support for diversification and import substitution. And by certainly by the end of 1957, the entire rice project had come to a dismal end. Wow. That's that's actually a remarkable, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're you're making two remarkable points. Um on the one hand, you're suggesting um that your your conclusion essentially was that Batista, you know, kind of, as you said, the figure we viewed in kind of a very negative light, um, had a more progressive um, economic plan with the import substitution and diversification um, economic policy in that vein than uh, Fidel Castro and this early kind of Cuban revolutionary platform that he ran on that was supposed to essentially diversify Cuba's economy and ultimately, in the end, Castro ends up kind of sharing the position of colonial Spain, you know, the anti-colonialist who um, adopts this kind of colonial position. And then on the other hand, um, you're making an intervention about how the politics uh, between sugar interest in the United States and rice interest in the United States up against those with the Cuban rice producers and Batista's economic policy came together at a really critical point where the U.S.'s withdrawal of support from um, Batista, you know, in, in, in terms of the scholarship, has always suggested that that was a, a, a turning point in terms of the, of the revolution. And so if I'm understanding you correctly, Rice figures, you know, part in that larger story. It does. And, and you know, and it's even more complicated than that because <laughs> the other issue that the, the other matter that Rice addresses is a staggering unemployment um, rate in Cuba. Um, Cuba had a, has you know, historically had because of because sugar is seasonal, um, you know, unemployment rates that could hover anywhere from twenty percent to thirty percent, which is roughly the unemployment rate of the United States during the Depression, and maybe soon to be again. Uh, but Cuba experiences every year. So there was this, this like depression every year in Cuba, and what Rice promised to do was to provide some some relief to the unemployment woes of, of the island. In other words, not only are you diversifying the economy, but you're also providing unemployment for many tens of thousands of Cuban workers uh, who otherwise would be without work. Um, and 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 the other the other part of this that is is no less important is. The, the capacity of, of rice again, to, to, to provide some, what we would call today, food security. Um, many times in the last 150 years, an international crisis uh, in the world 
that affects shipping, uh, you know, like the Civil War, uh, leaves Cuba stranded. Um, the irony in this is that the State Department under John Foster Dulles um, and U.S. diplomatic officials in Cuba, the agricultural attaché, the commercial attaché, career diplomatic people, um, opposed the rice, the U.S. rice interest. Um, John Foster Dulles really resisted um, the interests of the rice producers, U.S. rice producers, um, as they worked their influence through Ellender and the Senate um, to um, to pressure Cuba to end the the, the, the rice project. Right, so we have this this odd again. This is another anomaly in this where the State Department. Uh, and the career diplomats in the State Department understand the urgency to diversify the economy, um, to to create an economy that provided increased employment opportunities, um, because it was a critical issue in Cuba, um, and and they and they failed, and they failed. They could not overcome uh, the influence of of Ellender and the Senate. And a threat to cut the the, the, the sugar quota. Um, and again, just to put this in its proper context, this is going on in 1957, 1958, and we're already uh, in conditions approaching civil war in Cuba with the armed struggle against uh, Batista. So there is, well, I guess today we would call this a perfect storm uh, that overtakes the Batista government. Um, in an ironic sort of way, not to put too fine a point on this, or certainly not to over, overstate it, uh, one can say that certainly American rice producers uh, contributed to the circumstances that, in the end, undermined Batista's political position at home. Because the moment he stopped supporting rice, uh, we have now hundreds, maybe thousands, of Cuban rice growers uh, many of whom had invested a considerable amount of money and had taken out a considerable number of loans and all of a sudden found themselves stranded and isolated, high and dry, by a government that not only stopped support, but then allowed American rice to enter the Cuban market at prices uh, cheaper than the Cuban producers could sell. So within 18 months, the entire rice edifice in Cuba comes tumbling down and the vast majority of these rice growers uh, become become disaffected and disenchanted with the Batista government, and many of them uh, throw their support to the 26th of July movement. And the best example of this is Ubud Matos, who, who joined the armed struggle, uh, reaches the rank of comandante in the rebel army, and he comes from a rice-producing family on the south coast of Cuba. And yet, it's a short-lived um, experience for those American rice producers because after the Cuban Revolution and once the sanctions come in, they're going to be blocked out again. So one of the, you know, kind of conclusions I came from reading your work is how dependent um, those rice producers are on Cuba. So if Cuba is dependent on, you know, the U.S. market for sugar. The U.S. rice producers are, are were at least dependent on Cuba for its market. So, what happens to them um, moving forward after the revolution? 
Um, they don't miss a beat. I mean, yeah, they, they, they had some adjustments, some adaptation, but within a year and a half, two years, they have found alternate alternate uh, markets. Uh, a lot of rice goes into U.S. Uh, U.S. government-supported programs like Food for Peace. Um, yeah, the Cuban, the, the the U.S. rice industry uh, maybe suffered uh, a, a moment disloc- momentary dislocation, uh, but they recovered nicely. And again, if one if one enjoys irony, the one of the biggest advocates and the most uh, forceful um, critics of the U.S. embargo in Cuba uh, today is the American rice uh, industry that is eager to get back to Cuba uh, to sell its rice, and it is one does not need to have the gift of prophecy that to to foresee that at some point. At some indeterminate point in the future, uh, when relations are normalized, fully normalized between Cuba and the United States, as they inevitably will become, um, Cuba will become again dependent upon um, U.S. rice imports. It it is counterintuitive to think that Cuba would continue to rely on rice from Vietnam when it can get rice out of New Orleans. You said earlier in your discussion about uh, self-sufficiency in in Cuba, neither in the 19th or the 20th century um, had ever really been self-sufficient. And you, you know, you talked about the food insecurity, Um, you know, for our listeners who want to connect your work to to what degree they can to what's happening in Cuba today, um, rice largely coming from Asia, uh, what, you know, how does this kind of play out in their world today? Um, Cuba faces serious um, food issues. Um, it has, um, it is complicated uh, in, 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 in measure, in, in good measure, because they had depended upon um, what they would, what they used to be called the second safra, the second sugar harvest, which was tourism, um, to underwrite uh, food imports. Um, that is, um, the the receipts generated by foreign visitors would then serve to purchase food or a significant portion of the food uh, for the Cuban people. Um, and today, uh, with the the um, uh, pandemic, uh, there is no foreign travel. There is no tourism in Cuba. Um, there is very little, um, uh, even even visitors from, from the Cuban American community in, in the United States. Uh, and from what I've learned from friends and colleagues in Cuba, and this is anecdotal, uh, the lines are longer than usual and the prices are higher than usual. Uh, and they are facing serious difficulties in in acquiring sufficient food on, on a sufficient basis to feed the population. Mm-hmm. I mean, Cuba is not alone in this. I usually try to set a little bit of time aside towards the end of an interview to ask whether or not um, our guest is engaged in a small or a large project. And I, I'd be fascinated to hear what might be um, on the horizon from you, Lou. Uh, I am working on something. Uh, I'm not quite sure 
if it's going to be small or large. Um, I am revisiting the uh, the Wars for Independence, second half of the 19th century. Um, I've become fascinated uh, over the many, many years of reading and both primary sources and archival sources and, and this existing scholarship. Um, I've become fascinated by the, the, uh, the Cubans who fought for Spanish sovereignty. Uh, I've become fascinated. We, we have a kind of uh, an understanding of Cuba in the 19th century, certainly to one that I shared and, and, and subscribed to, that, um, that would lead us to believe that all the Cubans were patriotic and, and fought for the national liberation of Cuba. Um, and the more I kind of peel back the layers of the onion, and again, to get, as I said earlier, to get into the weeds, uh, the more I am coming aware of the large number of Cubans who um, bore arms against the Cuban insurgents, that the issue of, of, of nationality uh, uh, is is really very complicated. Uh, I dare say that had it not been for Cubans fighting for Spain and they were in the Ten Years' War, I don't see how Spain would have survived that conflict. Um, so I guess the short my short answer is I've become fascinated by Cubans who... Uh, who fought against independence. Uh, and there were vast numbers of Cubans, like who are these people, why, and what are the implications of, of, of that dichotomy? Can we look at the, the wars for independence in the 19th century perhaps more as a civil war than a war of independence or something in between? So that's what I'm looking at. I'm trying to see you know, what degree there is something here worth retrieving. Well, I know I'm not the only one who's going to look forward to your small or large um, product from, from that new research topic. It's been a pleasure having you on New Books Network and Caribbean Studies. I've enjoyed our talk. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it also. Please find a link to Dr. Perez's book, Rice in the Time of Sugar, The Politics of Food in Cuba, on our website. Until next time. <music>